Here we go. Today is Sunday, October 28th, 2018, and this is episode 227 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, as always, is Mr. Andrew Kellett. Good evening, Jerry. I guess this would almost be our Halloween episode, I would imagine, of uh, Defensive Security Podcast. That's correct. That's correct. In, In fact, I went to a Halloween party last night. Had a few adult beverages, and uh, I'm getting a little too old for that, apparently, because yeah, I'm you, moving slow today. You, you do look like you're moving a little more slowly than normal. And some of the Age. fans, some of the fans in the stadium have already uh, made comments to me about that. I know. Look, I'll, I'll, I'll do some Coke. I'll do some meth. I'll do some Red Bull. <laughs> I'll get my energy good. back up for the second act. I promise. It'll all be good. All right. Uh, and I guess I should have... Uh, previously said that the uh, thoughts and opinions we express on this podcast are ours and do not represent those of our employers or necessarily uh, reality so <laughs> it's true anyway um yeah so it's been a couple of weeks i think the last time we uh we were in your ears was uh the derby con episode which which was uh gosh it's almost a month ago now so oof I know, I know. Life got busy. Um, I, I, uh, I had, I had the uh, the travel month from hell. Um, I am back home. Uh, last last week, I um, I actually forgot all the stuff I had promised my family I would do in the evenings, and that's why there was no show last week. So there you go. Was, you know, you need to make some decisions about your priorities, Jerry. And <laughs> I, know. I know this whole family and job thing keeps getting in the way. Just, I think you might have to make some hard. Hard choices. Just, just not working for the show. I, I get it. <laughs> so. But I'm glad you're back, and uh, we'll see if we can get a couple episodes in before we all, you know, start traveling heavily again. That's that is for sure. Because the holidays they are approaching. Correct. Mm-hmm. So, um, so with that, happy Halloween, and uh, we we we'll get into some stories. And the first one comes from Healthcare IT News, and this is my um, you know my my token feeding of my um you know my availability bias or my confirmation bias i should say and the title here is um, debunking the cybersecurity th- thought that humans are the weakest link you are the weakest link goodbye <laughs> so i it struck me that the 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 point of this article and and there's also a a couple of or a, one video uh and that seemed to really hit strike a chord with the the presentation you gave at DerbyCon, right? Yeah, I will say it does match up nicely with some of the things I, I was rambling about during my presentation, which, if you're curious, by the way, uh, the video is available. We'll probably put it in the show notes or something. Uh, yeah, I, I, I actually did. So the last... Uh, one, there you go. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I, some people seem to like it. I don't know. They could just be being polite. Yeah. So so anyway, um, for those of you who don't know what the hell we're talking about... Um, the the point here of this um the, the person they interviewed here is that you know humans humans are humans right and you sh- we we shouldn't be thinking about them and their failures as a weak link 
it we should be thinking about that you know, human capability as uh, what I, <clears throat> the, the way I'll describe it as a uh, design constraint of security controls, and and so we shouldn't be artificially you know putting artificial expectations about the capability of people, for instance, to be able to identify. Uh, spear phishing emails and malware and and, um, and and not making just simple mistakes, right? That that's unrealistic in the, uh, it, which I think is the point of uh, the person they interviewed here. And as IT and, and IT security people, as, as she puts it, we need to design a security net. We need to put a security net uh, behind these people so that you know if if and when uh, they do something that is quote wrong. It's not. Uh, it's not a tragic event. It doesn't result in something horrific. Yeah. So if they get tricked into clicking on a malicious link, or uh, they open an attachment, or whatever it may be, some sort of uh, phishing or business email compromise, which is, and they talk about how much it's on the rise as well. Uh, it's not catastrophic for the company. We, you know, I concur. It's one of those things where you. You have to assume no matter how much you train, no matter how much the, the good intentions are there and how smart your people are, they're still going to get tripped up by even not very sophisticated attacks because the bad guys know how to push our psychological buttons and, and get us to do things. So, uh, and, and to think that we can train that away or uh, I guess, yeah, train that away. And and do enough awareness training that that's never going to happen is naive, yeah. and I concur obviously with the article because I spoke about the same topic. Uh, but uh, I, I like the concept of, you know, do your best. Uh, hopefully they they won't all fall for it all the time, but assume they will. And how do you build technical controls or process controls with that in mind so that it is not a catastrophic impact to the organization? Right, right. So, so um, one of the some of the comments in the article recommendations were uh, implementing network segmentation and multi-factor authentication as as examples of uh, of the safety net. By the way, uh, the the person who they interviewed here was uh, named Teresa Payton. So, just uh, didn't have her her name on the tip of my tongue. So, there you go. Um, I, you know, it's, it, it occurs to me this is kind of a sea change or, or maybe something short of a sea change in, in a perspective. Because for a long time, you know, it was the, the mantra was security is everybody's job. And, you know, I think to a certain extent, you know, we, we do need our, our people to be able to recognize, you know, certain things. But, you know, at the same time, the, the level of sophistication of our adversaries is such that, I think there's a there's a we've probably passed the point of diminishing returns on uh, on on what we can do with with education. So yeah, because everything takes resources away from a finite bucket. Correct. Whether people, time, money, energy, thought process, and where are you going to spend your time and energy? And that's one thing that I'm always curious about: how truly effective some of these training and awareness campaigns are and simulations and that sort of thing. Uh, and, and keeping in mind that it's also a moving target, you know, the bad guys can always adapt as well. So it's much like any sort of arms race. As soon as we get good at perhaps 
teaching our our folks or coming up with a technical control to stop a certain type of uh, psychological attack, uh, it's easy for the bad guys to shift to another one. There's there's plenty of of open uh, attack surface out there to go after people. So anyway, where I was going with that is I'm curious. Most of the stats I've ever seen about training and awareness and simulation uh, effectiveness has always come from those vendors themselves. I don't know of anybody doing true objective testing of what works and what doesn't work against certain types of attacks. Mm-hmm. So I'd be curious. Yeah, you know, the, I would say that there's there's um, there's probably data on certain types of things like like, like fishing. You know, we know that there's a, there's the, the fishing simulation providers track a whole lot of data and, and, and every now and then they publish reports about, you know, when, how, how likely people are to fall for different right. types of fishes and what time of the day and what day of the week and, and lots of stuff like that. But there aren't, you know, like I, I'm not aware of, of, of a similar thing for like, um, uh, attacks on a uh, simulated attacks on a help desk or, or, you know, and, and, and so on. Right. So, right. Um, it's a good question, but um, you know, the, I guess the point is, and, and I know I don't want people to misconstrue what what I'm saying, and I think what you're saying too is not that we should stop training, right? And, and I, th- I think training is, you know, is still very important. It's it's just that it's only one component, and we need to make sure that we understand the limitations of that component in the the context of the threat landscape. Yeah, I I don't want executives to get this false sense of security that because they're doing phishing training and simulation and having people go through online courses once a year, they're safe completely from this issue. That's just not true. Exactly. All right, so moving on to the next story, and this one comes from uh, thinkadvisor.com, and the title is SEC, that's the Securities and Exchange Commission for those not in the U.S., it's Voya Financial Advisors with one million dollar fine over cyber breach. That seems not a whole lot of money for a company the size of Voya, but no, no, it may, but it it has has some teeth to it. It's not a it's not a small small number either. Yeah, sure. Um, anyway, so Voya is a financial as as the, the name of the company may lead you to believe they are a financial. Um, you know, financial advice uh, uh, advisor organization, and um, they. Uh, th- so basically, uh, what happened was uh, Voya outsourced the servicing. Uh, I guess of of um, the the, the trade. I don't know if you call it the trading desk, right? But the 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 organization that helps um, their clients allocate money in in uh, investments and. In, and whatnot, uh, they outsourced Voya outsourced that to a third party, and in doing so, they created a, a portal that the that this third party would access Voya's customer accounts via. And so, some malicious uh, you know adversary realized how that all worked, and actually called up Voya and got Voya to reset the passwords that this third party used to access uh, Voya's uh, portal, account portal. And well, then, they were being they were being helpful. That's customer service. <laughs> totally. Totally customer service oriented. And 
Uh, and so the, these uh, adversaries then used it to access 5,600 different uh, VFA customers' accounts. And uh, and then actually they went so far as for three people, they for three of the victims, they actually um, uh, went so far as to impersonate them and, and did, uh, committed financial fraud. So um, anyway, the... the the SEC fine was was levied at uh, their violation of a particular new rule called the theft red flags rule. Or, I sorry, the identity theft red flags rule, which is again you may you know, be led to believe it's intended to help uh, prevent identity theft uh, of uh, of investors. Right. So anyhow. Um, the SEC claimed that, uh, that that Voya did not have appropriate uh, policies and procedures in place, and that in, more importantly, they didn't apply those policies and procedures to their third party. Ooh. Yes. But, you know, it's interesting because I was joking earlier about customer service, but there's actually a truism there. Uh, if you're too difficult to work with in a situation where, you know, you're a legitimate customer and you legitimately need to reset a password, uh, you lose business. Yeah. So there's a there's a balance between being – when you're a, a provider, when you have customers, that, that you're a business providing them some sort of service, if you're too difficult to deal with – you're going to lose business. And this is something that I don't think a lot of companies – a lot of people are aware of that this business trade-off, this risk trade-off exists when we're dealing with customer service issues and password reset issues and that sort of thing. Because you know, companies could just issue out you know, tokens or, or force everybody to use two-factor. But they know that there's a certain amount of customers that they will lose if they're too difficult to work with. Yeah, or they, perceived to be exactly. They yeah. they want to keep it. They want to keep the relationship as frictionless as possible, so that you're right. You want to do keep doing business with them. Um, you know, th- this is a th- this is a difficult needle to thread, like you said. And I would say that this this kind of attack, I think, is very very common. Not necessarily in the financial services space, um, because it's it's pretty reg- heavily regulated, and we tend to hear about it when it goes wrong. But I can say that I know of many, many, many examples of this happening in different industries, from telecom to um, ISPs to you know healthcare and, and many, 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 many other types of industries. But I don't think we really hear about it much because it's you know, the, the the problems that arise uh, tend not to um, you know, not to result in a fine, I guess. Right. You know, there's there isn't anybody uh, like the SEC lording over them and, and whacking them on the head. Now, just to be clear, Voya actually did not admit any wrongdoing, and they just they agreed to settle the the issue with, and and pay the one million dollar fine. So I just want to make sure that's uh, in, in well, fairness. I'm, I'm sure they probably also are now establishing those process and procedures called out by the SEC that they were lacking. Yes, yes. You know, and by the way, that's I, I, I've worked in um, you know, regulated industries before and for a while now, actually. And, and one of the problems you run into, or one of the things you really try to avoid is having the government come in and mandate, uh, you know, some onerous new process. And so, so again, kind of back to the point of threading the needle, you know, you, 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 
are you're incentivized to create your own policies and processes that uh, you know get to the end uh, the end goal. Uh, but if you don't, and the gut somebody some organization like the SEC comes in, they could really uh, wreck your day by by you know mandating processes that are far in excess and, and far more costly than something that you may have otherwise implemented. And so you you know you have to be cautious of that. Now we've I I don't know that um, that the SEC has in this case required a um, you know a third party. I don't know what the right word is, but uh, overseer. But like the FTC, the the Federal Trade Commission in the U.S., oftentimes when they settle um, uh, cybersecurity-related issues with companies that they claim did wrong, one of the uh, you know often one of the uh, the penalties they slap is uh, on is that a, a a third party overseer ha- must be engaged for like a period of twenty years. To, to lord to you know to watch over their uh, their security programs and you know <laughs> that's that's no fun by the way yeah it, you know not to get into the concept of uh, <laughs> is the government regulator all that wise to begin with <laughs> right you know no no and that, that's exactly <laughs> my point is that they, yeah they could be making you do stuff that is you know just pointless uh, and potentially uh, making you uncompetitive, right? Because exactly. your competitor doesn't necessarily have to do that, and or they're smaller. It's it's a really interesting slippery slope when you start dealing with all these sort of cyber oversight and regulatory issues from from the government. Because it it really, you know, it sounds on paper like a great idea, right? Somebody's coming in to make sure these companies that are big and important are are handling their security properly, and and we've got good professional oversight, but. There are these sort of unintended consequences in terms of innovation, in terms of of being able to adapt to the latest and greatest threats quickly and rapidly. Uh, if your regulator is sort of gun shy about new technologies because they're not up to speed, you may be not. You know, you're, you're very much uh, the dog being wagged by the tail because of what your regulator is comfortable with, mm-hmm. uh, and you know that's not necessarily the point of competition and you know creative capitalism and that sort of thing but that's a whole different topic i guess for another day uh but yeah it's it's interesting i'm sure and i'm sure that a lot of folks at at voya thought they were doing the right balance of risk versus business as well and uh you know they're they're not they're not naive they're making decisions based on what they think is best for their for their customers and their employees and their company yeah i mean it's it, it made sense. It probably made sense to somebody at some point. And, uh, but, you know, a, a lot of times, as I've seen, these sorts of failures happen as a result of lack of imagination on how things can go wrong, right? Not not necessarily out of sure. negligence or, or malice or anything. It's just, you know, ignorance of, of uh, how, how things can fail. And, you know, I think that's a, I think that's a really pervasive problem we have in, in IT, right now um so so there's another uh, another article um about a organization that was sanctioned here and the title here is uh insurer anthem will pay a record 16 million dollar 16 million dollars for a massive data breach and this comes from securityweek.com and uh so so we at the time this was back in 2015 i think god it was 
can't believe that was three years ago. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so at the time, uh, Anthem uh, actually was called uh, Wellpoint back then, and the the story, uh, as has now uh, been understood, is that uh, they were spearfished by, you know, a super advanced adversary who uh, sent emails around using the domain name instead of Wellpoint dot com. It was w e one one point dot com, and and uh, got people to log in and. Uh, get hand over their uh, their their company credentials and you know and here we are so uh so this is the uh, the largest HIPAA settlement or the largest uh you know f- settlement uh for for violating HIPAA uh, HIPAA's uh data protection requirements which, in history so which is interesting cuz i mean 60 million to you and i is a lot of money but to a big insurance provider it's not a huge amount of money to them no and so to this to be the largest fine is interesting it uh, maybe I, I don't know i don't know enough about the the regulatory mindset behind hipaa enforcement but it seems light for that to have been the the biggest ever well but, so so relative to the size of the breach i think that's that's true i mean it was um i think like almost 80 million yeah, seventy-nine million people had had personal information stolen. Uh, you know, in, including uh, this, as they say, names, birth dates, social security numbers, and medical IDs. I mean, basically everything you'd need to do some pretty good, uh, you know, financial fraud against against victims. Although, as as I understand it, there hasn't been any evidence that any of that data was used uh, in financial fraud. It was, I think, it was still assumed. At least the last I heard, at least, which has been a while, still assume that this may have been uh, a more politically motivated uh, attack than than uh, commercially motivated. But you know, that's all hypothesis. Um, I I think part of it may part of the, the the low settlement is probably that the law just doesn't really support a much larger settlement, and then the other is, um, you know, I. I don't think I'm. I'm not sure a larger settlement is or or fine is really warranted given the way that they were attacked. It wasn't like uh, Anthem had their guard down. I mean, you know, it was like kind of like we talked about earlier, right? It was that they were they were fished, and um, you know, that now they can be faulted for not having you know the ability to detect that unauthorized people were logging in with with authorized credentials and, and and that is made reference to here, but you know, that's, I'm not saying it's a good idea, but they could have forced two factor login. They could have done more advanced authentication mechanisms or things to fight this problem. Uh, but this goes back to what we were saying earlier. It it makes them more difficult to do business with and things that you and I may find trivially easy to handle may not be for those who are not it savvy or who have, you know, not spent their life working on computers and, uh, don't want to deal with some weird code popping up on their phone or whatever. You know, it's mm-hmm. we've got to keep in mind that their customer base is highly diverse in terms of skill set, intelligence, uh, technical acumen. You know. Yep. Yep. So. Um, think, yeah, so so the the Health and Human Services, which is the group that enforces hit uh, the HIPAA law here in the U.S. They're, they're quoted as, or the article says, uh, HHS says it, 
said its investigation found that Anthem had failed to deploy adequate measures for countering hackers. The company lacked an enterprise-wide risk analysis, which, by the way, I believe is an actual uh, requirement in the HIPAA regulation. And so, if they didn't do that, that's probably one of the reasons they got, like, you know, they got slapped. Uh, had insufficient procedures to monitor activities on systems. Again, that's you know, this is one of those things where I, I'm led to believe that they had procedures and tech capability to monitor, but they didn't work in a way that detected this. And so, therefore, they were insufficient by definition. And that's one of those but, things. Like, that's a trap, right? It is. Yeah. It could. What if it would have caught a thousand other ways this would have happened? Would this one edge case got by or yeah, it's whatever? A, that's it. You know, it's, it's a logic trap right there. Uh, they failed to identify and respond to suspected or known security incidents and did not implement adequate minimum access controls to shut down intrusions from as early as February 2014. Now, that last sentence, the last part of that last sentence um, kind of has me wondering if there are other, other things that we're not aware of, right? Because this breach happened in uh, 2015. And, the, and the, you know, the, the word shut down intrusions <laughs> it makes me believe you know that maybe maybe there are other uh, you know other things at play here that uh, yeah i mean you know to be fair we're just seeing a news report we're not we don't have any inside knowledge yep yep so um you know it, again it, the point is of the, the last two stories um you know the, i think governments around the world are becoming more activist in um even even in uh, politically friendly climates to business, I would say that that governments around the world are really starting to clamp down and and um, you know t- take mishandling of personal data by companies uh, pretty seriously, and and I think that trend is going to continue. So, um, you know, I, we're, we're something that we as security people have to, have to be really aware of and. Um, and at times, by the way, there's a, there's a story that we didn't include in this uh, about about the, in particular the GDPR having some you know unforeseen consequences in terms of uh, of um, of security, right? And and whatnot. Yeah. So so you know sometimes you have you've got um, you've got a pretty especially if you're a global company, you have a very difficult landscape of regulations that you have to navigate and. Uh, difficult to please all of your regulators all of the time so yeah yeah that is an interesting challenge and you know it's kind of it's kind of a double-edged sword like we were talking about earlier but i still feel like a lot of companies don't have the best guidance like we're still feeling our way through this with case law and expectations being truly written down and truly explained and you know it's it does feel sometimes like uh, you're kind of rolling the dice with some of these regulators uh, yeah i think we are i think we are in um you know in in a in an interesting period from a from a data privacy and data security regulatory perspective i mean i, I think that governments intuitively know they have to do something but they don't know what to do and um in in this you mentioned bef- you know previously they're um you know that that they're they're acting how they know you know in, in the way they know and sometimes that's informed by um you know by 
you know, parties with different agendas and, you know, parties that have ignorance about how things work and, and you know, lots of different, uh, you know, situations that uh, give rise to these regulations and whatnot. And, and, uh, you know, here we are, but at the same time, you know, if, if you're a, if you're a global company, you can't just, or, or even a local company, you can't thumb your nose at, at, at regulations. You, you have to, um, you know, you, you've got to comply with the law. So, Indeed. Anyway, uh, moving on to our next story. This one comes from Sukuri, the Sukuri blog, and the title is Malicious Redirects from NewShareCounts.com Tweet, tweet Counter. Um, so, I- interesting story. We've we've seen a lot of this uh, this happening, this kind of thing happening recently, and this is another variant of the supply chain uh, uh, attacks that have been, uh, which, which, by the way. Supply chain attacks, I think, have a ever broadening scope of of what kind of fits in there. So I'm, I suspect we're going to have to start breaking that down into subcomponents. But um, for for a long time, Twitter used to uh, have follow buttons that and tweet buttons that you could embed on your website that wouldn't you know show how many how many people had retweeted or how many Twitter followers you have. But back in 2015, they um, they got rid of that, and well, you know, everybody wants to, uh, you know, to show how many Twitter followers they have. So, uh, 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 you know, a um, cottage industry of third-party Twitter tweet counters popped up, including this one called uh, NewShareAccounts.com, and uh, and so that one apparently gained moderate popularity, and uh, and then went bust a couple of years later, and. Um, and, and so the way it, this apparently worked was you would uh, you would embed a piece of code, host uh, JavaScript code, hosted on an Amazon S3 bucket, and, uh, and and that that JavaScript code would uh, you know would do the um, the show the counts for you. But after apparently after the the, the real newshareaccounts.com organization went belly up, someone somehow uh, took over that the, the code hosted on that Amazon S3 bucket. And uh, and changed it so that it would actually redirect visitors uh, who were using mobile devices if they were to hit they were to visit a website with this piece of code included and they hit the back button it would redirect them to a malicious uh, website and which would which would then try to uh, to do various uh, malicious things um, so you know the, the, but the the point is that. And we we've seen this a lot lately, especially in the in the plugin space with like WordPress plugins and different um, uh, you know different plugins from from different pieces of open source software. You know, the, either the you know the the um, the original author you know exits the support of it of that uh, of that plugin, or uh, they sell it to someone who ends up being a, a you know a malicious actor. Um, but the point is, you know, we're 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 often including uh, code in our websites and, and maybe even internal applications that uh, you know that at one point in time are legitimate and valid, but over the course of time, you know, that ownership may change. And so, you know, this is a it's an interesting challenge because you know you. When you again, when you put it into practice, or when you put it in into service, it's legitimate, 
and it may stay legitimate for some long period of time, but then at some point in the future, you know, that something happens that changes hands and and now you've got a you know you've got something malicious on your otherwise legitimate website. And the tough part is it in this one it's really difficult for the website owner to even know. Correct. That they would need to get a report probably from an endpoint user of something weird going on with their it's a very innocuous looking code uh, in general. So it's it's an interesting supply chain issue. Uh, and you know, some of the bigger companies I see do like an annual audit of this stuff, but hell, that's way too long a period of time for this sort of thing to be happening, um, mm-hmm. uh, potentially. So it's it's an interesting problem. I, you know, I guess there's something to be said about be careful with, you know, frankly, if you're a big business, small projects, open source projects, or, you know, I hate to say that because that's some of the most innovative stuff, but in general, with a large company that you're if you're utilizing as a vendor for something like this you, you've got less of a chance of it being abandoned but i don't know there's no good answer on this one it, it i you know, we need to hire people to every day check all the third-party code on your website and make sure that it's uh, still maintained and not gone rogue it's it's an interesting problem well, not necessarily but i uh, you know well I, I, let me let me step back from this for a second, I, I think you're 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 spot on. That is is a difficult problem that has no easy solution. But you know, when you read through this article, there there were certainly indicators that something was going on. And you know, part of me wonders. And again, this this, this is like um, you know, IT is becoming like having kids. You know, you, you you it's a commitment. You know, you you when you um, when you stand up a website, it's like you're you know, you're committing to, uh, whether you know it or not, you're committing to a certain set of of things. And, um, you know, in, in this particular case, there were a lot of discussions happening on various forums like WordPress about how, uh, you know, how about how this, this particular uh, counter went, you know, went, went belly up. And so conceivably, if you had a program in place to, you know, to, to try to proactively monitor or, or check periodically on the on the, you know, the third party stuff that you've got included in your website. Maybe that's an answer. But like you said, I mean, what, how how often do you have to do that? Every day is ridiculously onerous, and once a year is way too long. But what's what's correct, right? And I will say, I don't think I ever had this problem with MySpace. Well, that's true. Until that, until that, uh, that um, uh, Sam was it the. The, the Sammy, uh, the the worm that Sam Camcar. Oh right, I forget the name of the the worm, but uh, yeah. So that my joke is not even appropriate. Carry on then. Wah wah wah. Mm-hmm. All right. So um. Anyway, if you have any 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 bright ideas on and what to do there, you know, we'll we'll make you famous, or something, uh, relatively famous. Uh, anyway. <laughs> So, sounded cooler in my head. Um, so our moms will know you exist. That's right. So moving on to uh, next story, which comes from CSO Online. The title is ransomware attacks attack hits North Carolina water utility following hurricane. Get Jack Bauer on the phone. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So um, story here is the uh, the Onwasa water supply company in uh, in North Carolina which is a regional water, uh, you know, water provider, 
um, was hit with a with a ransomware attack shortly after Hurricane Florence blew through and and wrecked um, you know wrecked a lot of the infrastructure in the region, and so you know they were already uh, this this water supply company was already kind of reeling from that, and then they were hit by this uh, this ransomware and and you know they look it's it's difficult to understand exactly what really happened, but the story here goes that. Back on October fourth, they were um, they were hit with this banking malware called Emotet, which is really a uh, um, it's it's more than a dropper, right? But it is a it's like a you know it's a it's an early stage uh, attack trojan that's typically used to deliver more advanced types of malware. And uh, sure, so so once it gets a foothold, it calls home to get potentially something better worse or evil correct correct and i suspect i don't know i, I you know i'm i'm not an emotet uh, expert but i, I i'll say <laughs> thanks buddy um i i have a feeling that this this may have been one of those cases where um you know, where the access to this company this this organization was sold uh you know on some some underground market through uh you know through through this infection right so somebody yeah. Some bad guy says, "Hey, I've got, I've got a foothold in these types of companies. Who wants it for a certain fee?" Exactly on on the dark web. On the dark web. That's right. Um, which which that's just when you load up the dark theme in Firefox, right? Then you're on the dark web. I that's what I always thought. I thought so. Yeah, you turn your right, turn your screen brightness down. Yep. Uh, uh-huh. Yep. Um, so, so absolutely. Uh, so, uh, but apparently they knew. So this this uh, water company Anwasa knew uh, that they had this Emotet problem, and um, uh, it, they were having some trouble apparently eradicating it. They said it was uh, it proved to be persistent, <laughs> in quotes. Um, which, which by the way, you know, they, they don't go into details about what that means, but I have this mental vision of people with malware bytes um, scanning and declaring systems that were infected to be clean and put back into service. Again, I don't have any insight knowledge, but I've seen this movie before and I know how that goes. And I'll just say this is a public service announcement. If you have a system infected with a Trojan, don't clean it. Take it offline and rebuild. Thank you very much. (laughs) <laughs> uh, otherwise you could but, be like Anwasa, who but, then but jerry the scan came back clean and we've got work to do <laughs> i know that's true that's true and uh, by the way how is malware bytes going to work in the cloud have we figured that out yet i don't know but um that's a great question hopefully i i, I gotta believe they're on it you know i mean how could they not right Right. So. So anyway. Um, yeah. Yeah. So so nine days later, on October thirteenth, uh, they woke up to a very bad. Oh, actually, I guess they were there while it was happening. Um, they they ended up with ransomware called uh, Ryuk, I guess is how you would say it. Um, and it's uh, it's it's not entirely different than the Sam Sam uh, ransomware that affected like the city of Atlanta. You know where it it. Um, kind of goes here there and everywhere and encrypts everything and <laughs> and and by the way the, the this next paragraph there's a paragraph in here that paints this great mental picture so it says uh although 
An UNWAS IT staff member was on hand to see the attack. IT unsuccessfully stopped the, the IT was unsuccessful in stopping the ransomware infection from spreading. The water utility said IT staff took immediate action to protect system resources by disconnecting UNWASA from the internet. But the crypto virus spread quickly along the network, encrypting databases and files. And all I can, I have this mental picture of someone running into the server room and like yanking cables out of, uh, out of routers. And Well, assuming that this quote is an accurate description of the response they took, wow, did they not understand what they were up against? No, <laughs> no they did not. So, so they had a, they had a, uh, they had a locally propagating, a uh, piece of malware that was encrypting systems locally, and they disconnected had, themselves from the internet. Right. So, the, so this malware had no need to talk to the internet, uh, and they unplugged the internet uh, because I don't know why. Yeah. So, so um, by the way, our, the Ryak malware or ransomware is it's actually pretty interesting. It is. In fact, fairly targeted. The uh, the the encryption keys, un- unlike many other types of ransomware, the encryption keys are hard coded into the into the ransomware on a per victim basis. So Ooh. it's um you know it was that that's why they're they actually do say that this was a, a, a targeted uh, in, you know, attack. And I would you know based on my understanding of Ryak, I would tend to agree. But okay, I I don't mean to pick on the victim here. But I do find it interesting that they had a week and a half knowing that they had active malware in their environment. Yeah. I, so so let me – I'm going to go on a, go on a little soapbox All right. and, and say that um, a lot of organizations when they see you – know, you, you know, you're a, you're a utility company and you see banking malware on your, you know, in your network. You're thinking, you know, what's, what's the thing that, that, that everybody's thinking? Well, you know – it's a good thing we're not a bank, and it's a good thing we don't let people do banking from their PCs. <laughs> True. Well, and also, did they even know what it was at the time? Uh, yeah. That see, that's we don't we don't know. I mean, it's easy to right. it's easy to sit here and armchair quarterback what was going on, but you know. No, but but I think part of the mission of this podcast is to dissect it for lessons learned, and. Yeah. One of the lessons learned is be aggressive in at least neutering the ability for this thing to communicate. Correct. So if you know what you've got, so I'm assuming, and this may be a, a bad assumption, that this Emotep did not come with the, the ransomware already embedded, that it must have done a command and control pull of that. Yes. And that is something that they probably should have been able to understand what that communication channel looked like and block it if they knew, if they did have good awareness of what they were fighting. We don't know if they did or didn't. But uh, And then knowing that you've got this self-propagating basically worm at that point, you know, you should be disconnecting impacted machines from each other, not necessarily the entire network from the internet. But uh, so there's a lot of, lot of issues here. And you know, jumping ahead a little bit in the story, because I know you were going to get on your sandbox too. Uh, they get a little sacrimonious <laughs> about about this, uh, and they also feel that this was absolutely intentional, um, and that there was. Uh, let's see who's who's speaking here. Uh, the CEO of this Anwasa, 
Anwasa, yeah, feels confident the time of the attack is related to the aftermath of Hurricanes Florence and Michael. Uh, let's see. Uh, Hudson told uh, WITN, which I think is a local news channel, the level of coincidence is too great for hackers somewhere on Earth to pick a community of heroes, the home of the Marine Corps, with three major military installations, picking and targeting a critical component of the infrastructure, the water system immediately following two storms. Eh. Yeah, I... I, I I tend to agree with you. I mean, I, even though it's targeted, I suspect that it was still a target of opportunity. A target of opportunity. You know, they they yeah. got this somehow. They got this emotet infection, and then I I I've got to believe that the um, you know the ultimate uh, ransomware attack you know, attacker was probably unrelated to the group that dropped emotet in the first place, but used it. I mean, they they just saw it as a target of opportunity. You know. Um, and all that being said, it, you know, they also said we'll never pay. Which is, which, by the way, I, I mean, good on them, right? You know, they mm-hmm. they, they make the point that um, you know just paying the ransom is funding criminal activity, and and so so good good on them for that. They point out that you know they're going to have to uh, that their operations are going to be slower while they're um, doing things manually and and recovering their IT. Uh, but you know, I. I Look, I I support that uh, that decision. If they have the ability to, you know, if the water isn't going to stop, like it would be a different story. By the way, if you know the, the, they were going to, if the whole area was going to be without water for the next month and a half, you know, I think that'd be a different, you know, probably a different calculus. Uh, but that's not what's going on here. It's you know they may have to process invoices manually or, or something like that for a period of time. Um, so, so I wonder if their computers were like under a boil computer advisory. <laughs> they had to boil their USB drives. It's <laughs> <laughs> the best best joke I can come up with when I'm hungover. I'm sorry. That's all I got. <laughs> no worries. Um, so, so anyway, I I um, I do think that uh, people tend, like you pointed out, I think people tend to automatically assume that they were targeted, and and I, you know, I do think that at some point this did become a targeted attack but i think it started off as a just as a, you know a, an opportunistic attack well there's also a pr aspect right if they can come out and say this was a a foreign government based oh, sure. targeted attack sure and you know it, it gives them a little air cover yeah yeah absolutely absolutely it's the you know the 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 foreign foreign governments are attacking us wanting our bitcoins <laughs> <laughs> the Russian government needs bitcoins. Um, so, so anyway, I, I think you said it very well. When you when you see something like this, we have to take it very seriously. I think there's kind of a couple of main lessons, at least for me here, is we need we need our people to be able to have some level of understanding of what they're dealing with. When uh, when something like Emotet hits, and being able to understand that, you know, that's a different kind of animal than, let's say, uh, you know, a, a malicious cookie that your antivirus flagged on, or you know, like you, you know, you, we need some ability to to be able to triage um, and, and and whatnot, and then also when you know when when you coincidentally happen to be on the site and you start seeing your your systems being locked up to be able to understand you know what is the what is the right course of action to take 
you know, because again, if this, if, if the description here is correct, that, you know, they, they, they really didn't help themselves any by unplugging the internet. It would have been better for them to unplug um, things, but you know, to be, to be candid, it's entirely possible that by the time they actually saw stuff being encrypted, that it had already propagated everywhere and, it, yeah, they true. wouldn't have, you know, unplugging anything wouldn't have really ha- helped at that point. Although maybe running into the server room and hitting the emergency power off button may have helped. But, um, you know, it's it's awesome to be able to armchair quarterback this stuff. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, uh, yeah, and, it's, you know, the, the point is for us to try to learn something from it to help yeah. other people, but uh, not to just nitpick them. And, yeah, and make, yeah. You know, Cor- correct, correct. Know. Because we weren't there. We don't know exactly what happened. Uh, have you looked up how Ryak spreads? Uh, it, yeah, uh, so it, so it, typically it spreads uh, the same in a similar way to uh, Sam Sam through uh, through, oh. RD, through RDP. Yeah, um, and and so by the way, I, I I it should be said that it is entirely possible that the Emotet uh, infection is coincidental and unrelated. That is a good point. So. Um, computers know, are hard. Computers are hard. Security is hard. <laughs> it's so <laughs> hard. <laughs> All right. Um, and then, uh, and then, last story for today comes from ZDNet. Title is Equifax engineer who designed breach portal gets eight months of house arrest for insider trading. So uh, another SEC um, a- a- action. Although SEC can't levy criminal. Um, penalties against a person um the 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 story is pretty interesting here so uh equifax in the in the lead up to their public disclosure disclosure of the breach they um uh, they mobilized a lot of efforts internally to to prepare for uh the ultimate the, the eventual announcement public announcement including the creation of the uh the the unfortunate um uh website that they created for uh you know, for for their affected customers, or the I guess they weren't really customers, the affected uh, data breach victims, uh, you know, to to log into and and get information and and whatnot. Um, so this was the Equifax Security 2017.com uh, website, which everybody thought at the time was a you know a phishing website um right yeah there was a lot of angst around that particular website as well right so so the the, the uh, Someone inside Equifax was actually uh, chartered with with helping to build this website, and at the time he was told that this was this um, that the code he was writing was to help um, one of their customers, one of their commercial customers, with their breach, not not you know not anything to do with Equifax, but through um, through his own research and and kibitzing with other fellow Equifax employees, he came to realize that. The, the the code he was writing was actually in support of Equifax's own breach that hadn't yet had not yet been disclosed. The breach, it's coming from inside the house. That's right. That's right. And so um apparently uh he took this as an opportunity to to uh to to make some cash. And uh you know he he uh, he did what any uh you know any reasonable person would would do. He logged into his wife's uh, investment account, and he bought a couple hundred dollars worth of put options <laughs> um, on Equifax stock for uh, you know a considerably lower value, and 
Um, that paid off to the tune of about $75,000 after the breach was, was uh, announced publicly. He, he profited about, um, about $75,000. So, uh, so ultimately, uh, Equifax, uh, they're, by the way, this is, he's not the first person, right? So this is the second person to have, uh, have charges brought against him. The first person uh, is still in uh, the, the, the case against that first person is still working its way through the, uh, the court system. Uh, but, uh, but this person was convicted and uh, has, to, has to pay a $50,000 fine and he has to pay back all of the profit he made and he is under house arrest for eight months. Hey. And he was fired from his job. Profit plus interest. Oh, profit plus interest. That's correct. Yes. Don't know what the interest rate is. So what we're learning is inside trading bad. Correct. And, and, I, and you know, I've, I've said this a few times before. A lot of times in security and in IT generally, we have access to non-public information. And just because we're not an officer of the company does not alleviate us from insider trading rules. Okay. And, and so it is, it is really important for everyone to understand that. Now I, I have a feeling this sort of thing happens a lot more frequently than we're, we're led to believe. But in this particular case, um, because of that first person that was, was found to be uh, insider trading, uh, Equifax launched an internal investigation and actually found that's how they found this person, uh, this person's activity, insider trading activities. So, and, and by the way, you know, you, you, you shouldn't not, you, you shouldn't avoid this because you, you know, for fear of getting caught, you should not do this uh, because you're an ethical person and, you know, you, you take your, your job as a security professional seriously and whatnot. And, um, you know that that I'm, I know I'm being preachy, right? But if you're if you can't do that, you're in the wrong you're in the wrong line of business. So, I, I did find it interesting that Equifax found the insider trading. Yes. So, normally you would assume like the SEC would do that because they have records of all the trades and can associate it with uh, staff members of the company and you know suspicious trades around that time. So, how did Equifax have that? Equifax can they can see they can get records of trading on their own stock. All right, that's fair. So, so they, I mean, I'm, I'm, I assume they, they, they looked at all of the the trade activity and option trade activity, you know, in a period leading up to the um, to the announcement and compared that against their list of employees and. It does make me wonder if organized crime, when they've got a breach that, that they know is going to get popped, if they don't somehow quietly, obfuscatively do this kind of stuff, too. Say more. What, what do you mean? So let's say I'm a bad guy and I'm an organized crime bad guy or foreign government or whatever. And I know I've got a foothold in a big company and I know uh. it's likely to get publicized at some point um, or like I know I'm about to get caught – if I can do it in such a way with good OPSEC so it doesn't lead back to me, maybe I short the stock or I buy puts or that sort of thing to profit as well. Now, that's of course, is a record of suspicious trade activity that could easily be identified. So you have to do it in a very clever way that I don't know how to do. But it seems like a way for a bad guy to increase their profitability of a, of a breach. 
Correct. Correct. And, and by the way, so, so let's, uh, let's carry that further and say, you know, if you are, if you're a bad guy who is, um, you know, has, who's been chartered with taking, you know, with, with launching an attack against the company, like you could hedge your bets on success by buying both, um, you know, short and long positions, you know, options That's true. In, in the stock, right? So that way, kind of, would, you know, if you fail, if you fail to affect your breach, you could still make, potentially make some money. Or you could just get into stock trading and just stay away from hacking entirely. Seems so pedestrian. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I'll have to noodle on that and see if there's a way they can do it without getting caught. Yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, you know, maybe the blockchain can help. Uh, who knows? Uh, oh. Yeah, right? Right. See? You are a thought leader, my friend. See? See? There we go. We sh- we should offer our consulting services to criminals. That's what I think. <laughs> that seems like a bad idea. Anyway. <laughs> Not the first one I've had today. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> All right. Well, that is the, it, that is the show and the stories for today. Um, thank you very much for listening. Thanks to our Patreon donors. Um, you know, sorry for the, uh, the, the prolonged delay, but hopefully we'll be back on a more regular schedule now that I'm back home and through, uh, through some personal commitment. So thank you very much. And thank um, you gentlemen and ladies and all our fine donors. You guys are awesome. And, uh, um, just a reminder that you can find links to all the stories we talk about, um, on our website at www.defensivesecurity.org. And, uh, you can follow the show on Twitter at defensive sec, you can follow Mr. Kellen on Twitter at Lurg and me on Twitter at Malicious Lincoln. With that, we will talk again soon. Take care. Have a great week, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.